thanks to again um, for Jenny Andrews. Jenny's ducked out, probably in the kitchen right now. Jenny helped organise a lot of the food on the weekend, and uh, a lot of other ladies also jumped on board. Actually, I think all the ladies, other ladies jumped on board as well uh, with cooking and preparing. That was a real blessing to have that because uh, that really makes the help. Uh, helps the camp to go really well when everybody chips in and I reckon they did a great job again in preparing uh, food for us. So thank you Jenny and the team there. Um, while I'm giving thanks also, I want to give thanks to uh, both Rob Finster and Pete, who are my brother, as uh, they helped out in the pulpit while I was away for a few weeks vacation. So I really appreciate Rob and Pete there doing that and um, helping out. That's a real blessing as well to have those guys here and able to um, share God's word with us. And also Caleb, Caleb, there he is. He stepped in for youth while I was away too, so uh, it's great when everybody sort of steps up and plays a part and uh, all helps out to um, fill the gaps, as it were, and uh, to keep um, Jesus being magnified and glorified here at Exchange Church here in Shepparton. So after a few weeks away, uh, we're going to get back to our um, sermon series, What Does This Mean?, uh, people have, over the past few months have sort of given me various passages and I've even still received another couple of passages this week as well. So um, we'll see how we go fitting those in. Um, back to the series, yes, what does this mean? Difficult passages or some they don't quite fully understand and we're going to get back to that today with uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and the question we have today here, what does it mean um, Jesus is made a little lower than the angels? We'll sort of work through this passage shortly. And uh, we'll get to that question and sort of explain somewhat around that. But the main thing we're going to do is, as we look at this passage today, is just see how Christ is magnified and glorified in every part of Scripture, and particularly here in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 2 as well. Many people climb Mount Everest to experience the glory of standing on top of the world and then coming home to tell the story. They long for that. They love that. They imagine the sheer thrill and the exhilaration of that final step and that glorious feeling at the top when they stand there, after probably waiting for 25 other people to go through and stand there, they get their chance, get their photo taken, and they love that. They just long for that, that feeling of exhilaration. They're on top of the world. They can get a photograph and they can go back home and um, post it on Instagram or something like that. But did you know that there's much pain and suffering that is required to get to the top of Mount Everest. It may be eight kilometres up and you think, I could walk eight kilometres in a couple of hours. Well, it takes a bit more than that at Mount Everest to get to those eight kilometres to the top of Mount Everest. People train for one year in advance. They're actually a year out and they're prepping and training to climb Mount Everest. They go through a year of gruelling and often soul-breaking exercising and training to prepare themselves to climb Mount Everest. They have to be physically, mentally and emotionally absolutely on top of their game and in peak condition to even contemplate climbing Mount Everest. They have to be absolutely in their best performance possibly physically, mentally and emotionally because they'll be tested to their limits and beyond to scale that mountain. It'll cost them probably $45,000 just to get the opportunity to climb the mountain. And often they don't make it to the top, but they're still going to pay $45,000. So the only way for them to experience that glory, to stand at the top of Mount Everest, get their photo taken and come home to tell the story, is through a path of pain and suffering and severe challenge. But the glory awaits them at the end of that. 
Well, the people in the book of Hebrews are feeling a bit like that today as well. It's a path to glory, but it's a path through challenge and drama. So join with me here as we read that from Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 5 through 13. Now, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should, be make, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise your name. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Father, we give you thanks and praise that we today can uh, gather around your word. We ask now, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would shed light into this word as we see Jesus, made a little lower than the angels for a short time, become the founder, the pioneer, the trailblazer of our salvation. Please help us to see that. Please help us to see what it means for us today as we think about that. Uh, Lord, we do ask and pray that now in Jesus' name and for your glory, Lord. Amen. Uh, Hebrews is a really interesting book. Uh, it's a book that has this theme of the supremacy of Christ running all the way through it. You, you often see this thing, Jesus is better than what has gone before. Uh, it also has the great faith chapter of the Bible in Hebrews 11 as well. If you want to go there, not now, but when you get home today. Uh, it's like the faith hero's hall of fame as uh, the writer here writes about faith and uh, how these people overcome this world by their faith. Uh, As with all books of the Bible, it's really important that we understand the background or the context here in this book, because if we grasp that, what's happening with them, it'll give us a deeper understanding, why did the author here write to the Hebrews about this? Why was he writing about these things? The Hebrew church is a suffering church. Actually, much of the church in the New Testament went through periods, long periods of suffering and uh, intense trial. Uh, It's a church that many scholars believe is in Rome and it's coming under immense pressure at this particular time. This is a time when the Roman government has has had just about enough of these Christians. They're sort of over them. This new breakaway sect from Judaism has really gone on long enough, they think, the Romans. And uh, these Christians aren't following the Roman customs. They won't fit into the Roman culture way of life. They refuse to get involved in Roman emperor worship. Romans were actually committed to worship the emperors as gods. So therefore, in not doing that, they weren't becoming good citizens of the Roman Empire like they should have been. So Rome's against these uh, Jewish Christians here in Rome. Also, the Jewish neighbours don't like them either. These Christians that we're reading about here in Hebrews, they're, they're Jews, but they're not living like Jews. They don't go to synagogue. 
They don't follow the food laws and they, and they freely mix with Gentile people who the Jews intensely dislike. These Hebrews here in this book are caught between a rock and a hard place. They don't fit in with the Romans and they don't fit in with the local Jews either. They're caught in this really difficult no-man's land. And these hard times that they're in probably range between people just plainly ignoring them and right up to being thrown into prison and losing all of their possessions. Maybe for the Jewish community they're a part of, they're just getting some scowls or cold stares from their Jewish neighbours. Maybe they're getting some nasty conversation for why they're not getting involved in the Jewish customs and the religious life of the local synagogue. And from the Roman end, it's probably worse at this particular time. Later in the book of Hebrews, we actually read there of some of them being thrown into prison and having all of their property confiscated. The Roman police come on down to their house. They toss the whole family into the back of the wagon and down to the prison and they're being shamed in front of all their neighbours just purely for being Christians. That sort of stuff really did happen. So how are the Jewish Christians coping with this? Well, how would you and I cope with this if we were Christians in Rome at this particular time? Perhaps their faith is really being shaken. Doubts about what they believe are probably rolling in big time. Is it really worth all this suffering and pain? Am I really believing the right thing? They feel harassed, vulnerable, forgotten, confused. And they probably feel really insignificant. Nobody cares about us. Perhaps their hope was fading away rapidly. Maybe some other false teaching was getting around or sounding a whole lot better to them than what the gospel was. Because this false teaching wouldn't involve the pain and hardship they're going through. Because they're saying, so far this Christian life has cost me a fair bit of pain and shame just from following Jesus. That's sort of the background here or the context of this Hebrew church as uh, the author writes this letter to them. So he writes a letter now in this condition to them. And this letter that he's writing here in Hebrews, it swings as it were, from comforting them in Christ, drawing comfort because they're following Jesus, and then it swings across to warning them also in Christ at the same time. Comfort during this really difficult time, but also warning them not to throw away this great salvation that Christ has secured for you. And with this passage here in chapter 2, we see a lifting up of Jesus or a magnifying of Christ to comfort them to comfort them. And what we'll see here is a picture of Jesus Christ, the founder of our salvation. But we'll see him in a really unique way in doing this because he goes out and carves a way out for us in this world in a really challenging way for Christ so that we could be filled with eternal hope beyond this world and for a better world to come. So let's dive in now. Let's see what the what the writer here is saying as we look at this passage. Firstly, uh, the writer in this passage reminds these people of God's original created order, as in what were God's intentions at the start? How did God create this world at the start? And what were our places and positions here? And he does that by using for us, so you might see in your Bibles like uh, an italics or a sort of a a squashed in bit of writing there. It's a quote. It's a quote from Psalm chapter 8 that he uses there. But we see it for us in verses 5 to 8 here, and it says this, For it's not a... For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Just maybe these Christians here in Rome, these Hebrews, were questioning the rule of Jesus Christ. We thought Jesus was going to rule this world, put everything in subjection unto him. And we thought that we had a place under Christ in carrying out this rulership. Maybe there's some questions rolling through their mind. If we think about Psalm 8, we, we won't go there, but you can read it later if you want to. We get this picture here of Psalm 8 of David, the shepherd, King David eventually he would be, out under the stars admiring God's creation in Psalm 8. David looks up under these stars and sees this immeasurable greatness of God. He sees this ever-expanding universe and he's blown away in his mind as he contemplates God. Now, I can relate to that a little bit. We were recently in Central Australia, and that's probably one of the clearest skies in the world. And uh, we were spent quite a few nights uh, out around the fire, and we looked up, and it's just unbelievable how many stars are out there. It just blows your mind when you think about it. So it maybe did think about David here as he gets this incredible vision of the glory of God. This David takes in that God created us also, mankind to be the rulers of creation under God. That was God's original creation order. And David's taken back as he thinks about that, that God's created us with special care and ordained us to carry out this rule or his rule through us. That was the original creation order. You've made man a little lower than the angels, as David reflects. Man reflects your glory, God's glory, as he rules over the created order that God himself has created. Think about created order back then, not David's time, but when at the beginning, when God originally created, it was in harmony with God and man. There was total and complete peace. Adam and Eve were in complete uh, happiness and relationship with God. They were ruling in peace and tranquility. Nothing was upset. Nothing was out of order. The animal kingdom was at peace. The earth was at peace. Adam and Eve were at peace. There was no fighting. There was no sadness. There was no evil. There was no victimising, there was no despair, there was no depression, there was no hint of rivalry. It was a place of happiness and harmony as good as it gets. And that's exactly how God had designed it. And incredibly, God left everything up to humanity and there was nothing outside of their rule and authority under God. They were put there to rule and subdue the earth as God's rulers. And to these Hebrews, they're probably maybe reflecting back on that. And that sounds really, really good to them, this peace and harmony and tranquility. But they're saying, it's not like that now. It's not like that now. We're not experiencing that now in Rome. Something's happened. They certainly do see something different. We see something different as we look even in this passage. At the back of verse 8, there's two tiny little lines of words there. They're only a couple of lines, but what they've got to say are totally significant to the Hebrews and also us today as we think about that. The last couple of lines there in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 says this, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Creation was ordered in God, but now we're going to see a disordered creation. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In the present Hebrews, or in the present exchange, we do not yet see everything 
in subjection to him. Now just a small note here on this word him, you might be thinking, well, who's this him referring to here? Because David's sort of quoting Psalm 8 and he's saying this is sort of the rule of mankind over the earth that God has created. Or is this him, Jesus Christ? You can actually take it both ways. And it really doesn't matter which way you take it here. Him can be us as in humanity, mankind, ruling under God. Or him also can be in Jesus Christ as well. Either way, doesn't matter here for this passage. The point is this though. The point is this. At the present moment, at the present moment, the universe does not lie in subjection to either mankind or Jesus Christ in a completed sense. It is not in subjection to mankind or Jesus Christ in completed sense. In actual fact, the rule of this world is in a corrupted way by humanity. It's in a corrupted way by humanity. And towards Jesus Christ, the world lies in rebellion before him. It's either corrupted by humans, how they rule the world, or this world rebels against Christ's rule. Creation is actually disordered. Order has broken down in this world. We don't rule this world as we should as human beings. We see mayhem and violence every day. Civil war and tribal opposition within countries is horrific. Some of the stuff that I see on the web from time to time, particularly in some African nations and also Middle Eastern countries as well, where tribal or ethnic conflict goes back hundreds of years and still today in those countries, we see it graphically on the news reports, there's widespread bloodshed. It's amazing. Whole villages are wiped out. Young girls are taken and they are pack-raped. While men, children and older women are just murdered wholesale in these uh, ethnic conflicts. On the Open Doors World Watch website, uh, the sort of stuff you see there really is barbaric as it records what is taking place in other countries, even in countries like India as well, with these sort of ethnic tensions. You look at these, village, uh, these photos of villages that are torched and burnt to the ground with really graphic bloodshed around them, and you wonder, how could this happen in 2018? How could this violence take place? How do countries allow this corrupted rule to go on? This is humanity ruling in corruption. How can somebody in those countries so devalue life they can just snuff it out like a candle? How does this rule take place? Not only in overseas countries, it happens here in Australia. This week, I'm sure a lot of you have seen that CCTV footage of that husband who killed his ex-wife on Phillip Island. You see that footage of him walking down a street and you see him, you know, an hour or so later, he's walking back, and in the meantime, he's gone and brutally killed his ex-wife. Horrifying. See, this world isn't in subjection to the rule of Jesus Christ, and the rule that we exercise over it is corrupted. We actually rule each other in many respects by domination. The other one I saw that day was just as horrifying, um, that group of three guys walking down the street and there's a total stranger walking up the other way, totally don't even know each other and one bloke breaks out of the package and just smashes him to the ground. They don't even know each other from a bar of soap. And you think, how does this happen? How sickening can it be? That's not the rule of Jesus Christ. That's the rule of brutality. 
See, humans don't rule this world the way it should be. At the present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Jesus Christ. And I'm sure these Hebrews could go right along with that truth in their context. They're saying, hey, we are ridiculed and despised every day by our Jewish neighbours. They shun us and they isolate us from our own countrymen, the very people we should be getting our support from. And the Romans, they just trample us into the ground as though we are nothing. They're experiencing this corrupted world in that sense. Maybe you've experienced that same type of treatment. Perhaps you've been shunned or you've been cut off from family. Perhaps you've been left out by so-called friends. Perhaps you've been bypassed because you don't quite fit in the crowd. You're not included, you're left out. Because you see, at the present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Jesus Christ. Or we don't see everything ruled by humans in a right and godly way. Now, I'm not a doomsday sayer. I'm a Bible person. And the rule of this world isn't going to get any better in the future. It says in Timothy this, in chapter two, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good. Doesn't read very well that, does it? That's the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write that to Timothy. The world is stuck in this mess. It aims for peace and harmony. They are having peace talks all over the world through these various ethnic tensions and ethnic conflicts. But we can't do it. We can't agree. Ultimately, no one's willing to really lay down their agenda. So corrupted rule just goes on again. We might get close. We might have a ceasefire or we might have a bit of peace for a while. But then these corrupted rulers and their distorted desires begin to rise up again. And this domination and brutality just starts all over again. We can't do it in this world. We are stuck in this pattern. In the present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Jesus Christ. That's creation here, disordered. Simple little lines there, but says so much to us as we read that. But there's hope. There's hope. This isn't a hopeless situation for the Hebrews, Hebrews, and it isn't a hopeless situation for us today either. I could have said Hebrews. Hebrews. We may see corruption and cruelty, but the author wants us to see something else. He wants us to get a vision of something else entirely different. He wants to see creation reordered. And we're going to see this here in verse 9. Look at it there with me. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Don't you love those first four words? But we see him. We see him. 
If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have got a different set of eyes. One set of eyes sees the mayhem and sees the violence and carries out the brutality even as well and tries to get peace, but it can't see anything beyond that. When you become a follower of Jesus, you receive a whole new set of eyes and you see something else. And the author there is telling us, we see him. But we see him. Jesus, the Son of God, has stepped into the picture to bring about a reordering of creation. But we see him. And we see this statement here attached to him, namely Jesus Christ, that he's made lower than the angels. That becomes our question there today. Someone was asking here, what does that mean? Jesus is made lower than the angels. A really weak illustration or example, but I'll use it anyway. Who's ever seen the show Undercover Boss? A few nods, heads nodding there. Yep, okay. It's a little bit like that. Jesus really is the boss. But he lowers himself. And if you follow that TV show through, it's normally the CEO of the company. He's up in his ivory tower, like all the rest of the workers down below think. He's up there in his ivory tower getting his um, free lunches and, and free everything else and lurks and perks and uh, experiencing the good life as it were in head office. And the undercover boss, he goes out and he just mixes it with the people in the trenches. He goes into the restaurant and they don't know he's the CEO of the company and he goes out the back and he's actually just washing down the washrooms and he's cleaning up all the rubbish and the, and the food scraps that are left over in some of these restaurants. He's just coming down and lowering himself into the world of these people who work for him in this company. He's the undercover boss. It's a bit like Jesus. Jesus lowers himself, as it were, into our world, the world that he's created, but the world that we have corrupted. And this is a really big truth here about Jesus. The Son of God, who is supremely God, no question about that, steps into the world that he has made to become one of us. And in doing so, he becomes less than the angels in the sense of he comes in human form. To grasp that, perhaps, we need to think about who are angels. Angels are featured right throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. They are the unseen messengers of God carrying out his commands. Sometimes angels did appear um, to Samson's parents. They appeared to him, or them. Sometimes they did. Um, They come to carry out the commands that God has. If you read through Genesis, you'll see this picture here, or this vision that Jacob has. It's Jacob's letter, and this whole picture is angels uh, climbing up and climbing down, carrying out, as it were, the messages of God throughout uh, the world at God's command. These are the angels. We don't worship angels. We're not told to look out for angels in help in life. We aren't meant to look for our guardian angel and ask their counsel in life. We're not told to do that at all. In fact, John the Apostle, when he's writing the book of Revelation, receiving this vision of Revelation, uh, he went to bow down and worship this angel who was giving him this revelation or leading him through this revelation. And the angel says, hey, 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 you don't worship me. I'm any created being of God. So we're not meant to worship angels. We are simply meant to be aware of angels in the sense that God uses them for his sovereign purposes. We are to be aware that they are incredibly powerful, strong, and way beyond any human strength at all, 
in their makeup, in their creation. Uh, we see uh, parts through the Bible where they are incredibly powerful, incredibly strong, way, way, way stronger than what we would be as human beings. They are creations of God that serve him. Now, I don't know, but maybe the Hebrews here had a deeper interest in angels. If you read through chapter 1, you'd probably see lots of mention there about that. I'm not sure why, other than maybe they did have some sort of focus or interest here upon angels at that time. But Jesus here is seen as being, for a little while, it says a little while, lower than the angels. This is the incarnation or the truth where God becomes a human being. And certainly... In human form as Jesus was, he is lower than the angels. He hasn't got that, as it were, superhuman strength the angels have. Although, as much as we can't wrap our heads and minds around it, Jesus still, as God, does miraculous things. But in that form, for a little while, Jesus is lower than angels. It's like the undercover boss. But now... But now, Jesus is far superior than the angels. You get a bit of a a mix here as you go through Hebrews. And he says it here, actually right for us at the start of chapter 1, when the author really opens up first to bring Jesus right into the picture here. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. We're talking about Jesus here. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. For a little while, Jesus is lower than the angels in this human form. But he is the one who upholds this universe by the word of his power. And yes, currently, the world isn't in subjection to the rule of God. And yes, the Hebrews and us experience this disordered world. But here's what the author of Hebrews is wanting to do. He wants us to see Jesus, but we see him. He wants us to see that Jesus has stepped into this disordered world to bring a reordered creation, to come back and to reorder it again. This same Jesus here we see radiates the glory of God, far superior than angels, and his nature is very God, and his power is unlimited. And it is delegated here by his unrivaled word. It says there he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus doesn't have to demonstrate some sort of physical strength by a bodily action as in picking something up. He speaks and his word commands whatever he speaks. He upholds this universe by the word of his power. And this is what the author of Hebrews wants us to see here. He, he wants us to see him. Let's go back to verse 9 now in, uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 2. Because we see here this Jesus crowned with glory and honour. This is precisely what the author wants us to see. Jesus filled with glory and honour, a perfect, glorious king, 
ruling justly and fairly over his creation. But let's just think for a moment here. How did Jesus get to this point of glory and honour? How did he get to this point here of being far superior to any angels? We're told there because of the suffering of death. Because of the suffering of death. Jesus is glorious to us because he suffered and died. He entered into this disordered, broken, corrupted creation that is not in the subjection, under the subjection of God or under the subjection of good human rule. He broke into this to bring about a new order, to bring about a reordering of creation, an order now that loves God and his right ways. So all the disorder and the corruption, which is sin, has earned this just penalty of death. But it says there in verse 9, Jesus has tasted death for us on our behalf, so that now by God's grace, we can be brought into this new order. It's not fully subjected, true, it's a kingdom that's now, but it's not yet fully um, consummated or fully in control. But Jesus has brought us into this new order. But we have to see here the incredible path that Jesus cuts out for us for this glory and honour. Because he's bringing us to glory and honour as well. And the path here is shown for us in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist. It's a pretty big statement, isn't it? It's all about Jesus. In bringing many sons to glory, that's you and I who are followers of Jesus, he's going to bring us to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus' path to glory for us is through suffering. Just a quick side note here. Don't get confused by the word perfect there. Was Jesus not perfect and he had to be made perfect? You might say Jesus was made perfect. Does that mean he wasn't perfect? The sense here is that Jesus' life was made complete in, in, a, in a totality sense of making this salvation complete or made perfect through his suffering for us. Jesus wasn't not perfect and then become perfect. His life now as a complete sense in making salvation available to us was made perfect as he went through this suffering death. This is the path of glory. This is the path that goes through pain and suffering. This is the path that Jesus has cut out before us. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. And Hebrews here wants us to see that. He says, but we see him. He wants us to see him. Now there's much we can take away from this passage today if we think about it. There's much to be seen here of Jesus. There's comfort and there's challenge. There's both here for us. Comfort is this. Jesus has blazed the trail of salvation for us. He's the founder. He's the pioneer. He's the trailblazer of our salvation. Jesus has done what no other human being could possibly ever do. Jesus has stepped into this world he created, but which we've corrupted, and he has stepped into this world and lived as the perfectly obedient son of God. We, us humans, fail and fail and fail, and fail, and fail, and keep on failing. Jesus comes in in perfection and cuts a path where no person has ever gone before. Jesus, as it were, 
lands on the island of death called Earth. And he overcomes every trial and temptation known to mankind that's been cursed with death because of our rebellion before God. Jesus cuts his way through all of that. He blazes a trail. He is the pioneer. He goes all the way through that and perfectly is obedient before God. And then gloriously, gloriously, he tastes death on our behalf so that we can now be reconciled before God. He is the trailblazer. He is the founder of our salvation. So the comfort is this when we think about that. Yes, we follow in the footsteps of our Saviour as well and we will suffer in this world. We will face challenge. We will face pain. We will face difficulty because this world is not yet in subjection to the rule of Jesus. The path to glory is through the pain of this world. But the comfort is this. Christ has given us this sure hope of that glory because he's blazed the trail before us. That's the comfort in the middle of the pain. There is hope and there is glory at the end when everything is all said and done. Yes, I may be rejected. Yes, I may be abused. Yes, I may be despised and I may feel abandoned. And it will hurt, no question about that. But I have Jesus who's blazed the trail before me. He's experienced all of that on my behalf. And he's cut a path to glory for me at the expense of my own sin. And that brings me comfort during the pain. There's also a challenge here for Jesus, from Jesus as well as we think about this. What do we see about Jesus? We see Jesus lowering himself to enter into my life and save me. That's a massive sacrifice. That's not small stuff, that's big stuff. I did nothing to deserve Jesus to lower himself into my world. I did nothing to earn that. Jesus in pure, free, sovereign grace comes and rescues me. He lowers himself into this rebellious world that I'm a part of. So as I think about that, as I think about what Jesus has done, I need to ask myself this. Am I willing to lower myself into other people's lives and bring the good news of Jesus Christ to them? Am I willing to do that? Because you see, here at Exchange, we are on mission. Make no mistake about that. There is a massive mission field here right in this community. 38,000 people do not know Jesus Christ here in Shepparton. Canberra, there's another 8 or 9,000 in Rupna. Nearly 50,000 people. And without Christ, they're only heading to one place. Eternal, desperate, dark hell. We are on mission. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We are the representatives of Jesus Christ here in the greatest shepherd and community. We have the good news of the gospel to set people free from the sinful bondages and the corruption of this world that is not yet in subjection to him. Am I? Am I willing to lower myself into their world? Am I willing to make the sacrifice and invest myself into their lives? Am I willing to forego some pleasures of this world so that I can bring the gospel to someone else? Am I, are you, 
willing to lower ourselves to meet people where they are in life. And often it's messy and it's uncomfortable and it's time consuming and it's costly. That's the challenge I see with Jesus as well. He was willing to lower himself. I ask today for myself and on behalf of you guys that the Holy Spirit would empower us today to lower our vision. And when I say that, is to, is to look away from ourselves. It's to look away from ourselves because in our sinfulness we are so bent on looking inward where life is all about me. So we're asking the Holy Spirit today to help me to look away from myself and to look out to those who are still trapped in this world that is not in subjection to Jesus Christ. This week I would ask you, uh, as well as I'm doing myself, to pray for and look for an opportunity to look outward and get involved in a friend's life who isn't a believer of Jesus, who is not living in subjection to Jesus Christ at this time, that we would be willing to put ourselves out, to lower ourselves into their world and to be part of um, their agenda in life and actually remove ourselves from our own agenda. Are we willing to do that? Because we need to consider Jesus. We need to see him who lowered himself into our messed up world, who laid aside his heavenly glory to be forever changed into a human being who died for us so that we could be saved. But we see him for a little while made lower than the angels, cutting a path to glory for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you today that we can come and uh, gather around.